If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Support for Green Dreamer comes from our listener patrons. To support this independent podcast and join our online community starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support to learn more. And thank you so much if you're already a member of our Patreon. The main international body that's delivered the, the authoritative reports on what's happening, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, those reports are delivered through a very compromised process in which governments need to sign off on the summary for policymakers. So governments that have huge interest in exporting fossil fuels like Saudi Arabia, Australia, the United States get to sign off on a, what's presented as the consensus of the scientific community. So it's not in their interest for this body to say, well, we're completely out of time and we need to stop emitting greenhouse gases right now, which is what any ethical interpretation of this situation would would tell you. That was Ezra Silk, the co-founder of the Climate Mobilization and the author of the organization's Victory Plan, which is an influential exploration of how the federal government can organize and implement a mobilization to save our civilization from the climate emergency and ecological crises. You may have heard of the Extinction Rebellion by now, while Ezra's Victory Plan actually directly shaped the movement's demands, as well as the framework for the Green New Deal. So you'll get lots of key insights in this episode, including things like what it means to push for a World War II scale mobilization in addressing our ecological breakdown, why we can't afford to create changes based on gradualism, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. My personal inspirations for caring about the environment come from my upbringing. I was raised to really Think about the lessons of the 20th century. I'm Jewish. In Hebrew school, we would often talk about the Holocaust and the lessons of the Holocaust. I also was aware that my family had a, had a history of being on the side of social justice. I remember there's this photo of my mom 
when she was a little kid with with Martin Luther King at her at her parents' house, and they had invited him there for a fundraiser in in Connecticut. And so I had this this vague sense that that I was supposed to be on the good side and that I shouldn't be a good German, a passive bystander to evil. And so when I became aware of in the early 2010s the scale of the climate and ecological emergency and the level of suffering that unless we stop it, it it's going to cause the level of mass death i had something shift in me something triggered that said this is this is a good german type of situation so i guess i would say it came out of my my religious i, I my parents aren't extremely religious but i guess my jewish upbringing so one of the primary missions of the climate mobilization is to initiate a World War II scale mobilization to reverse global warming and address our mass extinction. Why the connection between what we're facing now and World War II specifically? When the U.S. was facing the threat of the Axis powers and the Nazis after Pearl Harbor, especially, but in before as well, we organized the most massive mobilization of the economy. In history, and and the other many of the other countries participating in World War II did as well. We diverted a huge amount of our economy towards building tanks, planes, and weapons to give to our allies to win the war. It shows how rapidly you can transform an economy in the face of an existential threat. The U.S. auto industry was one of the the biggest industries in the world in 1941, and just a few months. It was converted because of government intervention into an entirely different industry. They stopped producing cars for civilian use in a few months, and so it's an incredible example, particularly of the home front mobilization, of how quickly we could change if we decided to treat this as the existential threat that it is. So it's an analogy. It's imperfect. It also touches on some of the element.、Uh, there's other elements just besides the conversion of industries. The whole population mobilized and participated. And when it comes to the climate ecological emergency, every single aspect of our lives will either change because we don't address it, and we enter what some researchers are now calling a global system death spiral, in which our civilization spirals down into total collapse. Or because we proactively respond, and we transform everything about our lives in order to make it safe for the climate, and so that's going to impact how we eat, what we eat, the energy we use, how we get around, etc., etc., etc. And so, in World War II, there was similar level of people being enrolled in their daily lives into that emergency response. Energy was rationed. People had rationed coupons. They grew victory gardens. Some people fought in the war. People signed up for war jobs. They moved across the country. It was a total revolution in people's everyday experience, and the war was the overwhelming reality of of the time. And we're we can see how if things continue to the climate events continue to accelerate, how the climate emergency will become the overarching reality of our everyday experience, whether we respond or not, in the coming years. We've known the science of climate change for decades, and scientists have also been pulling the alarm bells for decades as well. What do you see as the primary reasons as to why we haven't been able to create the awareness, the the changes that we need to make collectively? There's huge vested interests that want to protect this this failing status quo that's leading us rapidly into collapse, 
And they've done everything in their power to confuse ordinary people about what's happening. Mm, and it's working. <laughs> it's worked remarkably well. Now, it's not working as well right now. There's also been a lot of reticence. The scientific community has been very slow to describe what's happening in, in understandable, accessible terms that non-scientists can understand. They've used language that's remarkably difficult to comprehend. They've talked a lot about probabilities. They've allowed themselves to be compromised by economists who want to use tools like cost-benefit analysis when thinking about the future of life on Earth, which is a really disgusting idea on the face of it. They are, are just generally not very good communicators, and, and many people in the climate world have looked towards scientists to lead the way, when really what they can do is explain to us different scenarios for what could happen, but they can't describe the ethics of the situation we're facing. That's for other parts of the civil society to, to define. So that's a, that's a big element of it. Part of that is the climate movement. There was a orthodoxy that it didn't make sense to use fear as a communications tactic that by scaring people and talking about what the, the reality of what we're facing, the collapse of civilization, billions of people dying, that we would disempower people and cause a general panic in society. And so there was a communications approach that some have called don't scare the children that many climate communicators adopted with the idea that it, you, you cannot tell people how it really is. And part of that, in our view, we're a psychologically informed organization, is a lot of people who are in the environmental space, work for environmental NGOs, are projecting onto the public their own fear of what's happening because it's terrifying and it's very difficult to live with on a day-to-day on a -day basis. So that's another, another factor. And then I think there's, we've been too slow to recognize that this is an extreme risk and that it has very near-term consequences. And so people have been talking about it as a long-term problem with a long-term solution. And a lot of that's because of this scientific reticence that I discussed earlier, but also because the, the main international body that's delivered the, the authoritative reports on what's happening, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, those reports are delivered through a very compromised process in which governments need to sign off on the summary for policymakers. So governments that have huge interest in exporting fossil fuels like Saudi Arabia, Australia, the United States, get to sign off on a, what's presented as the consensus of the scientific community. So it's not in their interest for this body to say, well, we're completely out of time and we need to stop emitting greenhouse gases right now, which is what, what any ethical interpretation of the situation would, would tell you, because so many people are dying and suffering right now from global warming and the ecological crisis. So those are some of the factors. It's not comprehensive. I think the last one I would add is human nature. It's in our nature to deny our own mortality, to not face up to the fact that we're going to die, we're going to lose everything and everyone that we love. And I think that climate change is, is denial of death on a vast collective scale. Our civilization has run out of gas and is dying, and we all depend on it to, to survive every day. And so it's almost impossible to face up to the fact that we can't even rely on this economy that provides us our food and electricity and other modern comforts, that it's, it's going away one way or the other. So that's incredibly earth shattering to, to contemplate that. And, and it's very difficult without extremely strong leadership to know what to do with that information. Something that's 
become pretty clear is that the United States government was set up to inherently have many checks and balances to prevent drastic changes and in general only allow for slow and gradual change. So with this framework set up, people who are fearful of drastic changes and unwilling to admit that we do need societal, structural, and systemic shifts may have proposed solutions that rely on gradualism, so gradual changes over time. Like you mentioned earlier, people are looking to long-term solutions. What are some of those changes proposed that may require decades to play out, and why have you been adamant against such approaches? (laughs) The main framework that we have been criticizing is the the climate policy regime that was developed during the 80s and 90s when there was this notion of the end of history. There is no alternative to trickle-down economics, the world defined by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And that was a world in which capitalism was totally unquestioned and free market economics was considered to have been remarkably uh, effective way to run an economy and a society. We were, it wasn't the type of world that we're in now where it's all falling down and falling apart and is obviously completely failed. And that solution was based on the idea that the government shouldn't tell companies what to do. The government should, should set incentives. It should tax. You know, the basic idea is a carbon tax or an emissions trading scheme that would affect the price of energy in particular and increase it. And that would slowly reduce greenhouse gas emissions over time. That was a strategy designed to not challenge corporations very much and also to deal with the problem in a remarkably slow and non-disruptive way. And that's just not going to work at this point. We are we are passing, we have already passed climate tipping points. Like the West Antarctic ice sheet is already in a stage of collapse. And so even eliminating greenhouse gas emissions in a few years, as many people are now calling for, is not going to fundamentally stop the slide into chaos. So we actually need to start thinking about how we're going to reverse global warming, reverse the ecological crisis and restore health to our planet. And that's going to mean much more drastic types of measures than the market-based mechanism, carbon gradualist regime that was initially proposed in the 90s. And that, that regime has now lost credibility in part because the climate situation has deteriorated so dramatically and, and so much faster than scientists were projecting, but also because of events like what happened in France with the civil unrest around the carbon tax there. And it's just becoming clear that regressive measures, incremental measures are not going to get us where we need to go. Something that I'm really frustrated by that I hear is that oftentimes people say the United States only contributes to 15% of global emissions, which in my view is a really large number for one country alone. But it's often used as an argument for, you know, we can't solve this global issue ourselves, so why bother? Or other countries aren't doing their parts, so why should we sacrifice our economic growth opportunities for this? What do you say to that? The fact that that's even taken seriously as a talking point just shows the extent to which our country's discourse has completely collapsed and that we're living in a time of just utter infantile political discourse. 
just look at, I, I don't have it off the top of my head, but what's the quantity of greenhouse gases that the U.S. has emitted over history? And how are we embedded in the world economy? I mean, we've been the biggest beneficiary of, I mean, our corporations, at least, and the products that we consume cheaply. They may be producing these things in China, but like we're totally embedded in that world economy. And this Washington consensus of neoliberalism that we were talking about in the 90s is responsible for this massive globalization and increase in greenhouse gases that was flowing out of U.S academia and think tanks, all of this being done after Jim Hansen testified in the late 80s about the fact that we were beginning to see global warming. That was 20, 30 years after the first major report landed on a U.S. president's desk, Lyndon Johnson, in 1965, about how we're going to have a serious climatic disruption. So the U.S. has been incredibly responsible for the devastation of the biosphere, and we've done everything possible, at least our, our power elite and the Senate and the House and the vast majority of both parties have obstructed virtually every, albeit inadequate, attempt to deal with this through the United Nations. So our country is ridiculously responsible for this global crime. So how do we work with that? Because people often point to developing countries today that currently are going through industrialization and pointing the finger at them. When in reality, a lot of the things that they're manufacturing is for the developed world. So how do we work with the fact that, like you mentioned earlier, today's developed countries have already gone through their phases of industrialization and also were the ones to set up this path of quote unquote advancement that the rest of the world may have been indoctrinated or influenced to follow? One of the best ideas I've heard about this is the the notion of the countries that have emitted and are responsible for emitting the most greenhouse gases historically, paying for the huge effort that's going to be required to actually remove all these greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and directly paying these countries, the other countries that are, are less responsible for their efforts to, for instance, protect their forests or develop technologies that could remove carbon from the atmosphere. I think it's a really strong, solid idea that that should, you know, I'm hoping we'll get more traction. This isn't my area, but I think obviously there needs to be a huge transfer of funds and technology to the poor developing countries so they don't follow our pathway. Mm -hmm. There's an author named uh, Chandra Nair who wrote a book called The Sustainable State. He's based in Hong Kong. He's a Malaysian businessman. And he is focused on persuading rising elites in Southeast Asia and China to not buy into this delusional faith that's being propagated by U.S. business schools and economists around development and that we should just be trying to consume more and more products ad nauseum forever. And, and that's the entire purpose of the economy is massive consumption. And so I do think there's some interesting developments going on on that front. This guy, he's he's written off any hope that the Western countries will ever actually address this and that Southeast Asia, the rising developing economies are going to just have to chart a totally different path on their own and mm -hmm. basically just abandon the West to collapse on its own inability to address climate and sustainability. Right. And the difficult part is we we share the earth. So these developing countries may charter their own paths, but if the Western world continues the same destructive, extractive, and exploitative road that we've gone on for so long, 
it's still possible that we may take the rest of the world down with us. Absolutely. I totally agree. It's a nightmare. To zero in further on this relationship between wealth in the ways that we've been judging wealth or valuing wealth today with our economy, to zero in on this relationship between wealth and environmental impact, at either an individual or societal level, the people who have been extracting and exploiting our natural resources the most and contributing the most to climate change are also generally the people who have accumulated the most wealth and therefore power today. But these same people with the most power and wealth are also the same people who are the most disconnected from reality, the everyday struggles of the majority of the people, as well as disconnected from what's happening to frontline communities dealing with the effects of climate change today. So given that the people with the most affluence and ability to protect themselves, uplevel their security and access to the resources they need to live are the ones that can influence policy the most and create the systemic decisions or create the systemic changes we need. What is the best way for us to navigate this so that we can move away from this current people versus power sort of conflict and collaborate together on climate action? This is why civilizations have collapsed in the past is you have a, a detached elite that is insulated from the massive problems that it has created that are undermining the basis of the civilization mm. that provides them with their wealth and status. So what you're pointing at is an enormous issue. I think you're right to, to point to the possibility of there being some kind of alliance between non-ecocidal elites and the 99% in terms of not destroying the biosphere and allowing us to survive this this coming century and beyond. So it would make sense rationally that very wealthy people would not want civilization to collapse, even if they're making money off of the current ecocidal system, because they would take a look at, at what these researchers are talking about at the Cambridge Center for the Study of Existential Risk, this global system death spiral, and they would conclude very quickly that even hiring BlackRock and getting helicopters and, and walled fortresses and, and however, you know, <laughs> creating a, this colony on Antarctica once the rest of the world has become uninhabitable. It's just, it, it's not, it, it's, a, it's way, way too challenging, way too risky. It doesn't make sense. And it's evil. So I think you're right. I don't think we can underestimate the degree to which the vast majority of our elites are detached and delusional about about what's happening. Although I do think there's some evidence that some of them are starting to wake up and some have been awake to it for a while. So I think that there's going to have to be their lives are going to need to be disrupted in some way to, to bring this to their attention. And I think that the Extinction Rebellion style tactics are are helpful. I think there's there's other ways of building connections within the existing power system to educate people about the fact that they're on the Titanic and, and everybody's going down, including them, if we don't avoid the iceberg. And I think there's also potentially actions at the workplace that could help wake the ruling ruling class up, strikes, etc. So probably a variety of tactics will be needed to enlighten the the 1%. A quote that really stuck with me, and I don't know where this came from, but it goes something along the lines of how when you're privileged, justice feels like oppression. And I think 
this might be where we're at with the 1% in terms of them not wanting to come to terms with with the systemically unjust world that they've created and that they may have to sacrifice a little in order for us to reach the peaceful and safe and healthy world that we all share. Yeah, that's an interesting quote. So the idea the idea is that they feel oppressed by the demand for justice. For justice. Yeah. Yeah. Because it be them giving up things, essentially. But it's it's the drop in the bucket compared to <laughs> Right. What could happen uh, to and, all yeah. of us. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So how do how do we how do we effectively communicate that? And I think what a, what a lot of people are are trying to focus on is how do we divide and conquer effectively this this ruling class? How do we split off those who could potentially who see opportunities and potentially gain in this new economic system that will allow life on Earth to to survive and flourish, versus those who are completely invested in the existing regime and will never be able to let go unless they're effectively defeated. So I think we're going to have to look more closely at at how we create those kinds of divisions. So to help accelerate the global transition into emergency mode to address the climate emergency, one of your signature campaigns is the climate emergency campaign. Can you talk a little more about that, what's already been done, and what else you plan on doing to lead to this national and global mobilization? The concept of emergency mode is central to our thinking and our work. This is what we were talking about earlier with with World War II and the, the National Declaration of War after Pearl Harbor and the decision to throw all of the nation's resources effectively at solving this overwhelming existential threat. So we, we know that emergency mode is possible at a national collective and even to some degree global collective level, although we've never seen it done as a kind of all species response to an existential threat. We also know that people can go into emergency mode individually when there's your house is burning down and and you escape and you you identify the fire and the threat to your life and you jump out of the window. And organizations can go into emergency mode as well, like many organizations, for instance, the Federal Reserve did in its response to the financial crisis, dumping huge amounts of money into the financial system. So emergency response is a real thing. It's never been applied to a global threat of this level of complexity by the entirety of humanity acting in unison. And that's what needs to happen. We don't think it's going to be a switch that's turned on by one major country or we we don't think it's going to be a simple process, but it's a process that we've been aiming to initiate starting at the local level over the last couple of years. And our partners in Australia, we've worked with them to really pioneer this campaign to get local governments to declare a climate emergency and to begin the process of trying to lead society into emergency mode and spread this to higher levels of government. So we've now got about 1,200 governments globally representing over half a billion people have declared a climate emergency, with most of that happening in the last year and a half. And there's a number of movements that are emerging that are about shifting people, ordinary people, into emergency mode. We would say the youth climate strike movement, Extinction Rebellion, 
are very focused on this concept of the emergency response and emergency mode. And we think this is tapped into something profound psychologically, which is the survival instinct of humanity kicking in and saying, no, we're not going to we're not going to do this global system death spiral. We're going to have a good future and we're going to go into crisis mode now and we're going to deal with this whole problem right now. And so this is a big shift for environmental campaigning. Environmental campaigning comes out of a incremental reform mode of politics. And many, many organizations have been set up to deal with specific issues that are part of the climate and ecological crisis, whether it's plastics or fossil fuels, obviously a major one, renewable energy, et cetera, et cetera, population growth. And so what we're saying is we are so late in the game that we've got to all come together and throw ourselves into a mass movement, what we call the climate emergency movement, that's pushing for the big shift for governments to move into an emergency response to deal with all these things at once in an integrated way. And so the climate emergency campaign so far has raised consciousness. It's generated commitments from governments to this emergency response, but it hasn't actually delivered yet. The governments are not shifting into emergency mode yet. There's a huge problem there. And we view that as a function of the fact that the movement needs to get much more powerful. We think that this is clearly possible to do this with, with economies, but the level of resistance is huge. And we're just going to need more and more people involved. And so we have, we partner with organizations to give trainings on climate emergency mode and pushing governments to move into climate emergency mode and society as well. And this is really our central concept. So basically, when governments declare climate emergencies, sometimes that may not have, may not be followed through with a meaningful action plan. So we need to continue to mobilize to ensure that they follow through on this declaration. Exactly. It, it creates contradictions because the world and governments have, have been silent. They haven't been telling the truth about what we're facing, which is collapse, which is billions of people dying, which is the world international system breaking down, food coming off the shelves, the supermarkets, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is the process of beginning to recognize and sending a strong signal. This is a risk that is out of the ordinary, and it requires an out of the ordinary level of response. But these governments largely are so beholden to vested interests and so unaware of how to go, you know, the, the last time governments went into any kind of response like this was the Second World War. Mm. And so the current civil servants and bureaucrats, even if they wanted to do this, which is far from clear, they don't even know how to go into emergency mode on climate change. This is a body of knowledge, how to organize a mass mobilization of the economy that's disappeared to a large extent. And of course, this is different, much different than World War II. But there are, there are a lot of similarities in terms of mobilizing the entire public, diverting resources, potentially rationing goods and energy, doing massive research and development efforts, and so on and so forth, mobilizing the labor force. It, it, it requires what some people call complex program management, which is just doing thousands and thousands of major projects at once. And it's just not something we're used to doing, especially in an era where governments have become almost totally dysfunctional. 
in, unable to do anything, even things that are already fairly straightforward, like ending poverty or providing good health care. So this is the ultimate <laughs> this is the <laughs> ultimate challenge, and it cannot be underestimated how badly we need more people of all different skills, skill sets to get involved in this struggle for the future of our species and all species on Earth. And to close, what does emergency mode look like for us as individuals? Because it's really easy to feel overwhelmed when we talk about or learn about the realities of climate change. So how can we turn that overwhelm into meaningful action? It looks like forming a climate emergency group in your community that's focused on getting your local government to declare a climate emergency, getting your national government to declare a climate emergency, getting all the institutions in your community, religious institutions, education, businesses to declare a climate emergency, joining the school strikes, joining XR, joining Sunrise Movement Actions, all these different types of things to to raise the alarm about what we're we're facing. Uh, And it also looks like more personal, psychological-based transformation. We're training people on how to do something called pain into action groups. That's based on the work of our founder and executive director, Margaret Klein-Solomon, who's a psychologist. And her analysis that it's impossible to actually face the climate emergency, which is what her new book's called, without processing the enormous grief that's involved in even contemplating this. This is absolutely devastating stuff that even sitting with it for a few hours or much less a few days or weeks is utterly transformative. And the message is, let it transform you. Let this turn you into the hero that you want to be, the first responder to the greatest emergency in human history. So that's fundamental work that we think all people need to undertake in order to fully throw themselves into it. And it's incredibly challenging and it involves overcoming this denial of death both at the personal level and at the civilizational level. So we have, uh, we've got a lot, of, a lot of work to do, but it's, there's, there's nothing that could possibly provide more meaning in your life than being involved in this epic struggle to protect life and humanity and everything that we cherish as people and as a society in terms of the great books and all the the great pieces of art and everything that our civilization, uh, our very deeply flawed civilization has accomplished through some of the greatest people that have ever existed. All of that's at risk and we can rise up and defend that whole legacy by switching into emergency mode and joining the climate emergency movement. Here.
What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I would recommend The Great Disruption by Paul Gilding is a really excellent book. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and motivated? I practice mindfulness meditation and and loving kindness meditation. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Yoga. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? I'm helping to design something called the Mobilization Society, which was initiated by Roger Hallam, who's the founder of Extinction Rebellion UK. And we're convening a group of global leaders, economists, ecological realists, climate emergency and climate justice movement leaders to think through this global mobilization needed to save humanity and to come up with a plan. Mm. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet right now, if anything? <laughs> this movement, the people are people are really doing this. They're shifting into emergency mode. They're they're reckoning with the truth. People are waking up everywhere and and they're getting serious. That hasn't been the case until the last year and a half. It was like a complete nightmare walking around. It's like we're in the Truman Show. The world's ending and nobody's talking about it or doing anything about it. That's even remotely commensurate. So people are, humanity's waking up at the last second. It's a huge deal. It's, it'll definitely, this moment's going to go down in the history books. Well, to our listener, if you want to uh, learn more and stay updated on Ezra's work, you can head to www.theclimatemobilization.org. And you can also follow them on Twitter at Mobilize Climate and on Facebook and Instagram at The Climate Mobilization. As always, this will be linked at greendreamer.com. Ezra, thank you so much for joining us today and for leading this national and global movement. If our listener would like to support and get involved with the climate mobilization, what cause to action would you like to share? Go to climateemergency.us. That's part of the campaign to get Congress to declare a climate emergency. We're involved with an effort to introduce a resolution with AOC and Bernie Sanders and Earl Blumenauer a few months ago. And The number of co-sponsors is going up. So we need more and more people involved in pushing that resolution and in getting local climate emergency campaigns started. So that's the place to sign up, climateemergency.us. Perfect. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Don't give up. Like, we've got to do this. All that glitters isn't always gold Where's the credit in what they sold? Glide in the silver line in rivers far away It streams in the youth as they line up by the gates And now the fields are barren Where do we go? Where do we go? From here
Still, could it be part of the deal? 